Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Alice Roberts is a great friend and colleague. She and I made a program about the Terracotta Warriors together a few years ago, and I got to go to China with Alice Roberts and watch her do her analysis of the skeletons that have been excavated there in the mortuary complex of Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor of China. My God, that was a great project. Oh, looking back, I tell you what. And since then, Alice and I have been lucky to work on a couple of things together. She's a very brilliant scholar, a writer. She's a very brilliant broadcaster. And she's now on the podcast. This is happening, everybody. It's not a drill. Alice Roberts is here on this podcast. She's talking about the prehistory of Britain in seven burials. Going back and seeing what we can learn from the remains of some of the earliest Britons that we have ever discovered. She is absolutely wonderful. You're going to love this podcast. If you want to watch our documentary on the first Britons, we worked with a fantastic team of, I think they're paleoanthropologists, I think. Anyway, whatever they are, they were brilliant. And it was top of our charts on History at TV for Ages, showing that you history fans, you like a bit of prehistory as well. You promiscuous lot. Anyway, head over to historyhit.tv, sign up to the World's Best History channel, and watch all our documentary about prehistory while you're there. But in the meantime, here is the brilliant Alice Roberts. Enjoy. Alice Roberts, great to have you back on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me back. I'm very excited about this new book. I bet you are, man. But I look back on our days when we were running around China together to talk about the Terracotta Warriors. And now here we are just talking remotely and locked up in our houses. What a time we're living through. I know. It's weird, isn't it? Because that feels like a different era. Yeah. It was only a few years ago, but it just feels like centuries ago. It's so different. And I wonder sometimes if when we do get back to things being a bit more normal, I think things will be different than before. I don't think we'll ever get back to exactly what we had before. And I hope that some things will change for the better as well. But I think when we do get back to it, I wonder if we'll just have a week where we go, this feels really strange. And then it would just be like a nightmare. We'll have kind of forgotten about it and just settle back in. I'm sure we will. Because do you remember this time last year when we were all locked down the first time? We were just doing these Zoom calls, looking at each other, going, this is just bizarre. Now it just feels completely normal, doesn't it? Mm. Our ability to respond as humans is so extraordinary. There you go. There's a little segue. That's what we're talking about today, Alice. <laughs> Very elegant. So, yeah, well, not really. So tell me, you're looking at seven burials mm. in prehistory. Presumably, we're now able to tell loads more. If I go, hey, Alice, there's a burial in my garden. Come and have a look. You're like, right, we are going to find out what. Sex, what they ate. What, do you, like, Tell me what you can now find out. Well, the book really focuses in on this revolution that's happening in archaeology, which is quite profound, actually. And it is a collision between archaeology and genetics. 
and the astonishing amount of information that we can tell about the past and about people in the past and about all of these things that you just mentioned, because we can now extract ancient DNA and sequence it. And we're looking at whole genomes now. So if you go back 20 years ago, when people were starting to look at ancient DNA in various ways, and they started with looking at things like the Y chromosome or mitochondrial DNA, and now we are literally looking across whole genomes. They could also target individual parts of the genome and do quite meaningful studies, actually looking at particular variations or particular mutations that it happens throughout genomes. But it's just so powerful now and it's much quicker as well. And so the book is also about this amazing project that's being run in the Crick Institute by Pontus Skoglund, which is the most ambitious ancient genetic project in Britain to date. And he is aiming to sequence a thousand ancient genomes. So there's going to be some really big questions in archaeology that we'll be able to tackle as his project starts to produce results. But I think fundamentally, one of the biggest questions that genetics can help with in archaeology is about movement of people and cultural evolution. And in the past, whenever we found evidence of a new culture arriving in a particular place, in a particular landscape, we were never really sure whether that was new people coming in. And there were clues from my own discipline, from biological anthropology. So you could certainly look at skeletons and say, hmm, these latter people look a little bit different to the people that came before, but it was a bit hazy. Whereas now with genetics, what we can do is say, well, you know, are these different people? Are the people who were here in Britain in the Neolithic different from the preceding Mesolithic hunter-gatherers? Have they come in from elsewhere? When the beaker package of culture arrives, these wonderful beaker burials like the Amesbury Archer, which features in the book, buried with beakers, buried with these pottery beakers, but also with lots of other elements of that culture as well. I mean, the Amesbury Archer is just amazing. He's buried with, clearly, a whole bunch of arrows because we find the arrowheads. He's got a cushion stone, which we think is for metalworking. He's got a little fire-making kit. He's got gold wraps, which might be hair wraps, possibly, or something to do with the headdress. And in the past, when we saw this new culture arriving, it's like, well, is it just a few people coming over to Britain and then other people effectively picking up that culture, becoming a cultured? Or is this just a load of people? And we, you know, we now know because of genetics, there was a massive population replacement in the Bronze Age, which I don't think archaeologists had really considered before. And also archaeology has gone through different trends as well. So early 20th century, there was a lot of this kind of idea that if you saw a new culture, that was definitely a new lot of people. And this idea that a particular group of people biologically would also be represented in a certain way by a culture. Now, we've got a long way away from that. And of course, culture can slip sideways as well. So I can share an idea with you and you can then go and share it with somebody else. We don't need to be related to share those ideas. But what we're now going to be able to do with genetics is really pick that apart and see how culture goes along with movement and migration of people. It reminds me much more modern than your book, but obviously this age-old argument about the arrival of the Saxons, Jutes and other Germanic peoples in the sort of 6th century and onwards in the UK? Did they just replace yeah. all the Britons, the Romano British, or was it an elite replacement? Was it a genocidal migration of people? I find that's also fascinating. It is. I mean, I'm writing about that at the moment because I'm just writing the follow-up to oh, Ancestors. So the next bit gets us into history. So I'm just writing about Anglo-Saxons at the moment. And I also quite strongly feel that genetics is helping archaeology to resist history. Sorry, Dan. Because sometimes, sometimes archaeology is very much seen as the handmaiden of history. And it's like, here's the history. Here's what was written down once we get into that period. And then here comes along archaeology to illustrate what the Venerable Bede is telling us. Rather than saying, 
hang on a minute, is the Venerable Bede being completely honest with us? He's writing about events which happened centuries before he lived and wrote. The best way to approach it is to look at what archaeology is telling us independently of the history and then to go, okay, how does archaeology relate to the history? Because it's surely more interesting if you end up saying, actually, what the Venerable Bede was writing seems to be an awful lot of Anglo-Saxon propaganda and a kind of origin story for the Anglo-Saxon kings, which is what it is. We're not at the moment picking up any kind of profound signal of a big migration into Britain during those centuries when the Anglo-Saxons, whoever they are, are meant to arrive. So, yeah, I think it's a bit of a fabrication. Okay, so on that note then, so when you say ancestors, it's a kind of interesting title, but if there isn't a great population replacement in the area now known as England in the early medieval period, you mentioned there was, though, in the Bronze Age. So are these people actually Mm. our ancestors? And who do I mean by our and we've had Adam Rutherford on the podcast saying that we're all related to somebody very recent and all yeah. this kind of stuff. But like, yeah. are the burials that you've identified, are they the ancestors of literally all of us, of people with white British heritage? Like, how's that all working out? Well, people with generally white British heritage will have quite a lot of Bronze Age DNA knocking around. But as Adam will have said, we're so intertwined that actually trying to trace direct lines back doesn't really work. And also, if you go back... I think I'm quoting Adam Wright on this. If you go back a thousand years ago in Europe, everybody's either the ancestor of everybody alive today or nobody. Trying to create those connections through to the past by following your own lineage, you just have to accept that your ancestor is going to double at every generation until you end up actually with more people as your ancestors than there would have been people alive on earth ever. So everybody's family trees start to collapse together. I mean, I'm very careful in the book to say what we're doing is looking at ancestors. I like the original meaning of the word which is those who went before. And you don't have to have direct genetic connection back to an Anglo-Saxon or somebody living in Britain during the Roman period or going back into the Paleolithic. The genetics is about understanding them better. It's about understanding where they came from, population movements, all of that. It's not about creating a kind of unbroken link between you and a person in the past. And I think it's really important to say that because you can end up with you know terrible not just parochialism about it, but actually real kind of territorialism where people say, well, I come from a particular group of people and therefore I have certain rights which go back into history. And I think those arguments are difficult. So I say in the book, the ancestors belong to everybody. We're all interested in them. They're humans. And so the stories in the book are about individual lives and individual biographies. And you're making contact with those people as a human looking at another human thinking about what it would have been like to live in the depths of the Ice Age, thinking about what it would have been like to live in Britain as farming starts to take hold and the different lifestyles that were emerging then. So it's about that. It's about connecting human to human rather than having to find some kind of genetic connection. Just choose one of them and tell me about one of our ancestors, our forebears, and tell me what we know about Like, Just tell me what we now know thanks to this recent scholarship. Oh, choose one of them. That's really tricky, isn't it? One of my favourites is The Red Lady of Paviland, which is the first story in the book. because it's Yes, the, I like The Red Lady. Let's do The Red oh, Lady. Oh, The Red Lady's lovely. Although we don't really have any genetic insights when it comes to The Red Lady, but we have lots of other insights. The revolution that's happening at the moment with genetics, I've argued in the book, is as profound as the last really big technological revolution in archaeology, which was radiocarbon dating. Because suddenly you had the ability to pin an absolute date on something in the way that you as a historian would just expect to be able to do. And of course, reaching back into prehistory, archaeologists had never been able to do that. 
And they'd been able to assemble quite sophisticated sequences of events through time, looking at different cultures and how they changed and working out how long ago these things must have happened by cross-referencing from site to site. But it's so much better if you can actually just date a piece of charcoal and go, well, we've just got a really accurate date here within 70 years of when this event happened. So that was the kind of last big revolution. And, and that was really important when it comes to the Red Lady. So the Red Lady is a brilliant, brilliant story. And the Red Lady, you scientists have come up with one very key piece of information about the Red Lady. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's not a lady. <laughs> she's... <laughs> but what's curious about that, so she was discovered in 1823 by the Reverend William Buckland. He's a famous antiquarian, obviously. The antiquarian's antiquarian. Oh, honestly, he's just brilliant. He's lovely, Buckland. He's very entertaining. He wrote very entertaining letters. So I had a lovely time reading all his correspondence with the landowner at the Gower, where the Red Lady of Paviland was discovered, Lady Mary Talbot. And she was very interested in archaeology and her daughters were as well. And they knew that Buckland had been finding interesting caves with extinct animals in them. And when they heard about that, they said, oh, I'm sure there are caves around the Gower where people have excavated or, you know, turned up interesting looking bones. So they contacted him and said, we think we've got some good caves around here. And he said, well, if you possibly could go and have a look, that would be brilliant. And they did. And they removed bucketfuls, basketfuls of bones from this cave on the Gower, Paviland Cave or Goat's Hole, and sent some of it to Buckland. And he said, right, stop there, don't do any more, but don't let anybody else go in the cave. And he came down very quickly and did a bit of excavating and discovered not only more what he calls elephant bones, which are mammoth bones, but also were human burial. And I think when he first found it, he thought it was a male and talked to Lady Mary and said, well, this may be the remains of an excise man, maybe, who's suffered a bitter end at the hands of smugglers because there was a lot of fighting between excisemen and smugglers at the time. So they thought that it might be a forensic case, really, rather than an archaeological case. But then he looked at the evidence more closely, and this is a skeleton that he found lying in what he calls a red ruddle, so ground that was stained red with ochre, full of little pieces of carved ivory, which look as though they might have been either bead blanks or part of a long rod of ivory. And there were a couple of what looked like toggles as well, all sorts of little bits and pieces. And he said, right, okay, I don't think that this is a man. I think it's a woman because she's clearly buried with jewellery. So that's why he changes his mind on that. Not looking at the skeleton and going, well, it looks like a male skeleton. And it does. It's in the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. And I've laid it out and I'd looked at it. And there's a fair bit of the pelvis there. So that's a really good indicator. No skull, unfortunately, but the pelvis is even better than the skull for telling sex. And it's quite it's definitely male. So he decided it couldn't be male because it had jewellery. And he decided it couldn't be of an age with the mammoth remains. So he accepted that the mammoth remains were very, very early. He was a reverend and he was trying to get archaeology to match up with the Bible. So as far as he was concerned, extinct animals in Britain were partly evidence of a different kind of fauna before the Great Flood. So his idea is that you have this one catastrophic event, which is the biblical flood. And before that, you're going to have different animals which are now extinct. And then after it, you're going to have things which look more like what we've got today, including modern humans. So he's like, well, the human skeleton can't come from the same time as the mammoth. So it must be much more recent. So he decided it was probably a woman who might have been a witch because there's a scapula of a sheep, I think, in there as well. So he decided that she was using the scapula to do divination. 
I mean, it's just extraordinary. It had these scraps and came up with this amazing story about this woman. And eventually it kind of got to the point where he was pretty sure she was a prostitute serving the Roman camp on the cliffs above. And he's just wrong about everything, apart from the fact that it's human. <laughs> so it's not 2,000 years old. It's more than 30,000 years old. So radiocarbon dating has pushed the date back and back. And we had early radiocarbon dates in the 20th century, which were all slightly out. And we've now got a fix for that. So it's pushed the Red Lady of Paviland even further back in time. So more than 30,000 years ago, right back in the upper Paleolithic into the Ice Age. And that's before the ice sheets come down over Britain. Because by about 20,000 years ago, we've got ice right down as far as the Gower, in fact, almost as far as Paviland Cave itself. And then Britain would have completely depopulated. So we're glimpsing through that burial a population that was here in Britain. And we can say that's our ancestor in Britain. That's somebody who went before without having any direct connection or genetic connection with that person. But these are people that were living in the landscape, which is still familiar to us today, but would have been very different back then. And before that great depopulation, and then before people start to return back as the ice melts. If you're listening to Dan Snow's History, I'm thrilled to have Alice Roberts on the podcast. More after this. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tell me about someone you've been able to get DNA from and what that has allowed you to do 
over and above the dating and just the looking at the bones with your expert eye? There's lots of things you can do with ancient DNA. So one of the things you can do is look at these transitions and say, are the people who are arriving or seem to be arriving with a particular culture, are they really arriving? Have they come from somewhere else? And that's what we've been able to do, looking at the origin of the beaker package with the arrival of the beaker package, for instance. And that is fascinating because if you trace that back, that actually goes all the way east to the Pontic Steppe with an expansion of horse riders from the Pontic Steppe whose culture spreads east and west, actually. But looking at Europe, it spreads west across Europe. And then by the time it gets to Britain, it has changed and become the beaker culture. But when it first starts out, we think these people are also bringing the first Indo-European languages into Europe as well. So it's this really kind of stunning coming together of archaeology, genetics and linguistics in that case, showing us how this culture, but also within that culture language as well, is spreading across Europe. So that's kind of one thing you can do. There's really kind of big picture stories. And then another thing you can do is focus in really, really finely on the kind of detail and look at, for instance, kinship. So there's some really interesting studies now looking at particularly the Neolithic and looking at long barrows in the Neolithic and these chambered tombs, which are communal tombs. And people have suggested for a long time, you know, there've been lots of hypotheses out there about what these chambered tombs are about. And one suggestion is that they're essentially like a family vault and that you would have maybe a particular elite family, a dynasty, if you will, and that these tombs are for those people. And what's really interesting now as we start to get genomes from some of the remains in those tombs is that we are seeing connections. So we are seeing relatives buried in some of those tombs. And in some of them, there'll be one tomb and then there'll be another one a few miles away with a relative. And then there's one in Ireland where there's been evidence of incest as well. So we're seeing some kind of bits of biographical detail that I don't even know if the people back then would have known through the genetics. So it is quite astonishing how much you can tell. And it's also not just about human DNA. So another strand of the Thousand Ancient Genomes Project is that Pooja Swali in Pontus's lab is looking at metagenomics. So she's looking at the genomes of all the things that you find in ancient human remains that aren't human. And that's just amazing because we've had some really exciting revelations recently about things like the plague of Justinian. And being able to actually say, okay, well, we've got really good documentary evidence of this plague sweeping through the Byzantine Empire, but now we can actually say it was the same as the Black Death. It is Yersinia pestis because we can actually extract and sequence Yersinia pestis DNA from skeletons that were the victims of that particular plague. And just a couple of years ago, one of the samples or a few of the samples included in a study of Yersinia pestis came from an Anglo-Saxon cemetery or early medieval cemetery in Essex showing that that Justinian plague, I should just call it the Justinianic plague, not to blame it entirely on Justinian, the plague of Justinian. It's not his plague, it's just the time. Those people in that cemetery had died of the plague. So it had come from the Byzantine Empire as far as the shores of Britain. So, you know, things like that, which you just never would have known. It's kind of frustrating for me because my, my background is as a biological anthropologist and a paleopathologist who's focused on what you can tell from the actual bones themselves. And I was amazed when I started doing this work. I was a medic originally. And when I started working with old bones, I was like, really, you can tell all this stuff? Because like, you can't talk to them. You can't ask them where it hurts. You can't 
do blood tests and all that kind of thing that I'd expect to do as a doctor. You can do x-rays, of course, and those work on old bones just as well as they do on new bones, living bones. But there are some things which are really, really pathognomonic, great term, which means if you've got the sign of it on the bones, then you know what disease it is. And there are just a handful of diseases which leave really typical marks on your skeleton. And they are things like syphilis and TB. And then most other infectious diseases leave you with kind of non-specific changes on your bone. And either the bone gets eaten away a bit or it gets added to. So bone can only respond in one of two ways and that's what it does. So you end up an awful lot of time going, oh, you've got non-specific infection in these bones. And that's it. You know, that would be the limit of what I could tell. But now somebody like Pooja can take a sample from that skeleton and sequence it and go, well, actually, this is what we're looking at. And tell me specifically which organism was responsible for that infection. So that's just amazing. Can I ask you to be very naughty and pretend that none of your esteemed colleagues are listening? What do you think in the next 20 or 30 years? Is this pace of change going to continue? Or if we're like, oh, well, that's everything we're going to discover about DNA. Are we going to find out whether they liked, you know, turmeric? What do you dare to hope that as this journey continues that we all discover? It's a really interesting question because focusing on ancient genetics, about the limits of what that can tell us. And there are elements which I quite often call them biographic elements, but they're not biographical in the way that you would expect in history where you actually want to know what somebody's thinking. And I think that's where we just have to say, we don't know. And I think there have been so many developments over the 20th century into the 21st century in terms of archaeological science and things that we never thought we'd be able to do. I mean, you know, scraping little bits of residue off the inside of a piece of pottery and going, well, we know what they were eating. They were eating cabbage or they were eating something that had milk in it. Being able to analyse the lipids that are still there in the residue on pottery. I mean, that, I think, probably 50 years ago would have seemed utterly extraordinary and beyond the bounds of what anybody would ever be able to do. But undoubtedly, there will be new techniques that come along and there will be new revelations that come along. And some of the information that we'll be able to glean from archaeological human remains will draw, as it is drawing at the moment, on what we can tell about genetics here and now and the relationship between things like genetics and you're talking about interesting aspects of physiology. So the relationship between aspects of physiology and anatomy and genetics. I think there'll be more of that that we'll be able to pick apart. I mean, it's a bit of a dark art at the moment. Being able to do things like, say, Cheddar Man, who is in the book, 10,000 years ago, had dark skin and blue eyes. It's a bit of a game of probability because your genes interact with your environment. So we don't know things in an absolute way when it comes to predictions like that. We can be relatively sure, but not absolutely definite. So we have to recognise as scientists when we kind of reach the end of being definite about something and then start to go, well, it's probable that Cheddar Man looked like that, for instance. But I think it's really important to be aware of the limits of your powers, as it were. I've worked in forensics as well. So I've worked on forensic cases and I've always got that in the back of my mind. So it's interesting to kind of speculate and it's interesting to kind of push it and say, well, perhaps this is what the genetics is telling us. But I think in the back of my mind, I've always got this thing, would you stand up in court and say that? Would you see someone committed on the basis of what you're saying? And I think it's important for us to realise where the limitations are. But I think an absolute limitation is getting inside people's minds prehistory. The wonderful thing about writing is that people are telling us what is in their mind, or at least they're telling us what they want us to think is in their mind, coming back to the venerable bead. 
It's not a kind of direct download of what's in their brains. So yeah, I don't think we'll ever know what people are thinking. And I don't think we'll know why people were doing certain things. So one of the things I talk about in the book as well is approach to life and death and funerary rites. Why people are doing a particular style of funeral, why they're choosing burial or cremation, why with the Pocklington charioteer, who's just the most astonishing chariot burial from Yorkshire, why was it important to bury him not only in an intact upright chariot, which is very unusual, but also with intact upright horses? How do you get a pony into the ground in an upright position? It's just extraordinary. I spent a long time talking to the archaeologist who excavated that about how you would actually get a dead horse into that position or a living horse and then kill it without it falling over. But actually, the more interesting question, of course, is why? Why was it important to do that? And again, I don't think that lies within the grasp of science. And that's when archaeology starts to become an art, I think, and we engage with it on a human basis and it becomes much more subjective. But I like that because it means that anybody can look at that Pocklington charioteer burial and say, well, I think he might have been this, or I've got an idea about that. And everybody's ideas are relevant. Yeah, I love having a bit of a dig at ancient history. And I love archaeologists like, it seems to me logical this person must have fallen down whilst... It's like, what are you on about, man? He's got no imagination. As you say, it's like an art form. It's wonderful. Alice Roberts, you are a total legend. Thank you very much for coming on this podcast. Tell us the name of your book. It is called Ancestors, The Prehistory of Britain Through Seven Burials. And you're writing another one now about the early modern. That's so cool. I am, I am. Tell me, is the Repton Viking in there with the boar's tusk where his... Do you know, I do, it's quite personal pulling these lists together because obviously you could Everyone's got pick on so many yeah. different burials. And so some of them are ones that I've worked on personally. And I think when it comes to the Vikings, I'm going to have to look at the Vikings that I've spent quite a long time working on and thinking about. And they are the Vikings from Clamedigoch on Anglesey, which is this amazing Viking settlement site that was excavated by Mark Redknapp over about 12 years. And I ended up looking at the bones for him, mostly because my then boyfriend, now husband, was a supervisor and it was the only way I could spend any time with him in the summer was by going and volunteering on this Viking dig in Anglesey. <laughs> well, listen, those are your Vikings. I respect that, but they're not as exciting as the great heathen army Vikings of Repton, obviously, or down near me, oh, the old oh, Vikings but- on the old... Uh- the old bypass down near Weymouth. Those are my favourite Vikings. They're late oh. Vikings. They're all beheaded perhaps by... Uh... But also, Great Heathen Army, there's no point in writing a book about that because there is a fantastic book about that out already, Cat Jarman's River Kings. I mean, it's just brilliant. And can I tell you a secret? Cat Jarman is joining me on Digging for Britain this year. So we'll be back with Digging for Britain on BBC Two later this year. Breaking news, folks. Breaking news. That's great news. What a dream team, the two of you getting that done. Well done. Well done. Congratulations. I will look forward to you on digging and thank you for coming on the History of Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I hope we can get together in a field looking at some bit of archaeology sometime soon and not just do it via screens. I look forward to that enormously. <laughs> thank you, Dan. I feel had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hi, just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I'm currently sheltering in a small windswept building on a piece of rock in the Bristol Channel called Lundy. I'm here to make a podcast. I'm here enduring weather that frankly is apocalyptic because I want to get some great podcast material for you guys. In return, I've got a little tiny favour to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, If you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. 
then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favor. Then more people will listen to the podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.